Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Now, more than ever, our communications are distributed and digitally connected. They are the lifeblood of the enterprise. With Smash, you can leverage all of your communications as a strategic asset. Smash enables companies to transform oversight into foresight by surfacing business critical signals in more than 100 digital communication channels, from email to WhatsApp to Zoom and many more. Regulated organizations of all sizes rely upon the Smash portfolio of cloud-native, AI-enabled digital communications capture, retention, and oversight solutions to help them identify regulatory and reputational risk within their communications data before those risks become fines or headlines. Smash serves a global client base spanning the top banks in North America, Europe, and Asia, along with other leading financial firms and various government agencies. To discover more about the future of communications capture, archiving, and oversight, visit www.smarsh.com. My concern is that the way that the regulators often talk about culture is too superficial and not granular enough to be helpful to the industry. I'd like to see the Edinburgh reforms reinforcing this conversation that's already partway started of how can we support good, engaged risk-taking. As UK watchdogs continue their drive to stamp out aspects of poor culture within the financial services sector, those tasked with responding to the many ongoing and upcoming regulatory requirements can easily feel overwhelmed. Today's guests outline what financial services bosses and boards should do to cut through the regulatory noise while still building ethical organisations, as well as the common mistakes they should avoid. They also detail the regulatory changes they would like to see emerge from the government's latest package of proposed Brexit reforms. And they discuss the questions they would like to see UK lawmakers answer as they seek to map out the city's future outside of the EU. Jan Putnus is a partner at law firm Slaughter & May, where he oversees its financial regulation group and co-heads its financial institutions group. Roger Miles is a behavioural risk expert with a PhD in the psychology of regulatory design. Since 2016, he has led lobby group UK Finance's Conduct and Culture Academy as its co-founder and faculty leader. Hi Jan, welcome to Following the Rules. Hi Lucy. Hi, Roger. Welcome back. Always a pleasure. We're speaking as the UK's Financial Conduct Authority is in the midst of implementing its new consumer duty, which are a huge set of new rules due to come into effect on July 31st, and which will require banks, insurers and other financial services companies to prove that they have acted in their customers' best interests and produce good outcomes in areas such as pricing. The FCA COO Emily Shepherd said in November that the consumer duty was one of the biggest policies that the FCA had unveiled in recent years that will do the most to address conduct. Shepherd also said then that the FCA planned to encourage firms to analyse their culture and how that affects their conduct, and that firms should offer the right environment for employees of all backgrounds to feel safe and challenging and speaking out. And that is a nod to the FCA's ongoing efforts to tackle non-financial misconduct within the sector. And non-financial misconduct relates to behaviour of regulated financial services staff taking place outside of the day job. 
representatives from the FCA have previously said that they saw non-financial misconduct and the poor culture it leads to as a root cause of recent major conduct failings within the industry. So a question to you, Jan, to what extent do you think the FCA's messaging on culture has been effective in improving culture and conduct within the financial services sector? Well, I'm a long-standing sceptic of this because I think it's absolutely right to talk about culture, including to talk about culture as a source of risk, or more positively, perhaps, to talk about ways in which positive characteristics from a cultural perspective in an organisation can reduce risk in the long term. But I think for some years it's been apparent that it isn't, in fact, very helpful just to talk about culture in a nebulous sense as a source of failure. And that you have to be a bit more granular about it. You have to drill down into what it is we mean by culture in an organisation for this to be a helpful concept that we can actually use to drive change. Okay, interesting. And Roger, what do you think the FCA is missing in its efforts to promote good cultural outcomes in the sector? The regulators' dialogue is strongly improving over the 10 years since SMCR started in this jurisdiction, that we're no longer fixating on these hopefully long-tail events of extreme financial misconduct or indeed misconduct generally, there's a much more healthy forward-facing dialogue around the industry understanding of itself as doing something economically and socially useful. And we don't fixate on conduct as all being about the bad stuff and frankly frightening people inside the industry with threats of extreme consequence for what sometimes are actually quite trivial misbehaviours. Now, when we kicked off with the FCA back in, what was it, 2013, they were perhaps rightly focused on stopping people from mis-selling financial contracts. And since then, they've swallowed a couple more psychology textbooks and they've realised that it helps to look at the incipient bad behaviour in, let's call it, more of a social setting. So whether that's outside the workplace or just between people in the workplace, there's this idea of early red flags for obnoxious behaviour. And I was teaching a group of American bankers last week, this non-financial misconduct. I said, I'm really sorry, that's a rather complicated policy sounding phrase. And one of them said, oh, you mean behaving like a jerk? And I thought, yeah, that's a really good translation, actually. Casual obnoxious behaviour is absolutely the right focus for this sort of assessment. God knows as an industry, we have a history of casual obnoxious behaviour in all sorts of places. It is no longer okay, as they say at Netflix, to hire brilliant jerks. You want to have people who are socially aware and functional and capable of adult-to-adult conversations. So things like, of course, discrimination, abusive behaviour, harassment, dishonesty. But increasingly, we're also seeing a conversation around things like not being thoughtful about consumer consequences. So that's what the whole consumer duty thing is. And even more at ground level, this idea that if there is no evidence of an active conversation around how we behave is a red flag in exactly the same way as something like greenwashing, basically lying on your marketing material about your ESG credentials is a conduct offence. And lack of conversation at team level about conduct is also a conduct offence. Culture is very straightforwardly what you believe the right thing is to do. Alternatively, what you do when you think no one's looking. And we really are holding people to account for bystanding whilst toxic culture grows. I think it's incumbent on anyone charged with managing a business effectively to think in a granular way about what cultural characteristics they want to encourage and deter. And basic foundations for being able to do that effectively is to understand what your purpose is as an organisation, first of all. So what are you trying to achieve? So the key questions I think that organisations should be asking themselves is what is it that we mean by culture when we talk about cultural change being needed to achieve a particular regulatory outcome? And secondly, what are the 
cultural characteristics within an organisation that we should either be encouraging or trying hard to avoid as sources of risk and to ensure that everyone working in the organisation gets that and understands what that purpose is. And secondly, what the risks are that you're going to encounter along the way that have to be managed that could otherwise prevent you from achieving that purpose. I had an interesting chat with the board of directors yesterday on the work of, I'm sure we all three know, but possibly our audience don't, Amy Edmondson at Harvard about psychological safety. So Amy's book I've seen on the desks of many regulators recently, and they are quite rightly looking at this concept of psychological safety as one of the indicators that we want to have in the conduct space. Now, Amy's point is you want to have a situation for every employee where they feel that they are not fearing negative consequences. They're not fearing reprisal, not so much for just turning up to work, but they should be able to take risks. And I really like this thought. We should be in the business of risk-taking. If we're not taking risks, we're not functioning. People tend to look at risk as all the bad stuff, and that doesn't really do justice to the word. Risk is the judgment point that sits between hazard on the one side and opportunity on the other. We should be in the business of taking risks, but in a thoughtful and considered way. Now, if the culture basically slaps people down every time they take a chance on something, even if they are genuinely doing it for the right reasons and trying to help the business, then actually you're going to Amy Everton talks about this, you're walking around with a bunch of people with half of their brains shut down. So why do you hire intelligent people if you perceive them to shut down half of their cognitive skills? Certainly in the banking and insurance subsectors, not necessarily the whole industry, that there's a subculture of fear of failure, particularly the more senior you get, that we don't want to be associated with anything that looked like it didn't work because it's all about success. And if you are a proper scientist, you'll design an experiment. And one of the possible outcomes of the experiment is that it will fail or that you won't get a successful outcome. And that's just really how life should be if you are learning. If you're approaching something in a spirit of inquiry, you want failure to be a possible outcome, which enables you then to make the thing better next time you do it. Unfortunately, the banking industry doesn't have a great history of that frame of mind. They're so risk averse, ironically. Bankers are not primary risk takers, they're secondary risk takers. They are using assets of other people, mostly, to place risks on commercial plays or markets. The people placing primary risks are the entrepreneurs, the actual business builders. Now, this fear of failure cripples a lot of thinking. And if you look in the work of people like Matthew Syed on cognitive diversity, he has this great study of how corporate organisations hire bright, intelligent people from lots of different backgrounds and life experiences, and this is all great. But what then happens is that they get all of that diverse thinking crushed out of them by the weight of the compliance system or the weight of the reporting system or very narrow expectations that their managers tend to have of them. Mm. So you've got all this lovely, fresh thinking that comes into the room and then somehow it is never allowed to take its seat at the table. Okay. You mentioned the SMCR, which is the Senior Managers and Certification Regime, a set of rules designed to hold bosses at city firms more accountable for their behaviour. And you mentioned a couple of interesting sounding publications there, which I'll be sure to include in the podcast notes for listeners that might be interested. But it's also interesting that you mention risk and the need for the financial services sector to be in the business of taking risks. And that is actually a goal that Andrew Griffith, the City of London Minister, recently referenced the government as having in the context of rethinking the UK rulebook post-Brexit, he said that he would like to encourage the city to take more risks in a sensible manner. Also Mm. recently raised concerns that the FCA's consumer duty reforms could impose new regulatory burdens on the financial services industry, just at the time as the Treasury, as the government, is trying to refocus the city to be this more risk-friendly environment. And in that context, relaxing some city rules as part of a perceived Brexit opportunity. What do you make of those concerns? 
they are to some extent real concerns and a number of financial institutions I speak to regularly do voice those concerns. They're not concerns over which the sector has no control at all, though. There are plenty of things you can do to help manage those risks. And I think to throw out or to rubbish the entire endeavour that the FCA has been running here in coming up with the consumer duty is the wrong way of approaching it. As I say, I would not rubbish the whole thing. I think there are elements of the regime that are good and that are frankly supported by many of our banking clients for a start as a step forward in terms of the improvements they need to make in the relationships with their own retail customers. As negative as he has been about that, and I'm wondering what particular constituency he's speaking in favour of sometimes when you hear him make those comments. You could see his position being arguably a reflection of the government's commitment to make London more competitive post-Brexit, following concerns that its role as a global financial hub is being eroded. Do you see his comments as a reflection that UK regulators will come under pressure to go easy on financial services firms in the months ahead? We never should forget that every regulator is a political appointee. I don't mean obviously every single member of staff, but the head of regulatory agency is a political appointee. And that therefore the regulator reflects a number of things. The politics of the time, the concerns of voters, the recent track record of the industry that they're regulating. These are all social objects, much more than they are legal issues. And the FCA, we have to remember that their roots were in the ashes of the financial crisis in the early 20-teens and that they were very much required to show that they were calling out that cadre of senior managers who were responsible for the crisis. Now, fast forward 10 years, and you ask the FCA about their track record of actually prosecuting under SMCR any misbehaving senior people. Oh dear, there aren't any. And they are now reframing that as, well, yes, but SMCR was an effective sheepdog exercise to corral directors into a space where they'd ask each other more questions, where Ned's had more power in the boardroom, and so on. And to be fair, it has been highly successful by that brief, but was that the brief it originally had? Well, actually, no. There's another view of regulation, which is that it's subject to political cycles that actually no regulatory agency lasts much more than a decade, and that therefore the FCA itself might be up for a radical overhaul because we have an election coming. There's a thing called the Edinburgh Reforms. Nobody quite knows what that means yet. Is it down to the regulator to help set competition policy? I'm not sure about that. But really, the bottom line is they're there to keep their political sponsors happy. And we are, of course, in a post-Brexit environment, very much in the field of how can we be competitive again? And we shouldn't be at all surprised that we see politicians leaning on the regulators to amp up this idea of competition policy a bit more. I don't see that being competitive necessarily means cutting corners. One of the things I like about the FCA's achievement is how it has adopted this positive pivot towards what they call exemplary conduct, rather than their historic fixation on calling out long-tail events of misconduct. It allows the industry to walk into this space that says, look how useful our product is. We help the economy to function, we create employment, we enable international trade and all of these good things. And that's a great story to tell. It's really good that we can say that. And it's good that the regulator is supporting orderly markets that enable all that stuff to function. However, we do still need to catch the bad guys. We know, looking at the psychology literature, unfortunately, finance does tend to attract a small number of people with sociopathic characteristics and we need to be able to catch them. The undercurrent of the comments we're talking about is that somehow the industry, particularly perhaps the larger financial institutions, have somehow become too risk averse. That is the undercurrent of the suggestion that there's something about the way we regulate or don't regulate financial services in the UK, which makes people more risk averse than they need to be. And if that is indeed the undercurrent of the political commentary on this, it requires some unpacking. What is it about our system that has created that result, if indeed that is the result we're living with? 
What risks is the minister saying should be taken that are not being taken at the moment? Unless you can answer those questions, we're looking a little bit like the conversation about culture. It's too nebulous to do anything with. One also has to think about where that risk ends up. When one looks at that against the way that bank balance sheets are managed, the way the bank resolution regime works, where is that risk going to end up if the balance sheet is managed badly enough? It's going to end up either with the shareholders and the creditors or worst case scenario with the taxpayer. So how much risk is the minister really saying should be taken and by whom? Because it's not actually just by the banks, it's by their investors and ultimately the taxpayer as well. There's another way of looking at this, which is that we should be more innovative. We should somehow learn to banish this fear of failure that you were talking about earlier, Roger. So the risks I'm talking about here would be the risk of inventing an innovative new product and that product failing, rather than the old-fashioned balance sheet type risks that have caused bank failures in the past. How can we make London a more innovative place? And actually, there's a lot of innovation in London that perhaps doesn't get the airtime it deserves. How can we maintain that? Because we're not the only innovative financial centre in the world. And part of that, at least as far as the large and more traditional financial institutions are concerned, is dealing with that fear of failure, saying it's okay to come up with an idea that doesn't in fact fly, that perhaps some money is spent on, but it's ultimately not successful. And certainly if I think about the range of financial institution clients I act for, there are some that have quite a refreshing attitude to failure and to being pretty relentlessly focused on analysing why things fail and learning from that, rather than casting about for blame as soon as something goes wrong to the detriment of actually understanding why it's gone wrong. I was doing research around an investment bank last year, um, talking to various different client-facing deal-making teams. And one of the teams showed me this book that they have, which is a kind of wash-up book of what have we learned from what went wrong? And I said, this is fantastic. They said, yeah, we're very proud of this. And I said, so how are you socialising this new insight that you're gaining into risk? How are you sharing that around the rest of the bank? And they said, oh, no, we wouldn't do that. <laughs> this is our team's special source. This is what we do that makes us such a good team. And I thought that in a microcosm is part of the problem. I think another part of the problem, I interview NEDs in financial firms as part of a long series analysis that I've been sponsored to do for oh, getting on a decade. And we're now beginning to see real tension in boardrooms that there's a new demand for NEDs and indeed for execs with good experience, understanding do retail consumers who are digital native and all of that. And the financial firms are really keen to pull these people in, but it's the regulator themselves that is saying you can't do that because you have to have a certain amount of flying hours of financials experience. So we've got this, not for the first time, and by the way, this is, I'm not just calling out the UK financial regulator, I think this is globally a problem, and indeed is a problem between industries generally, that the regulator is part of the culture of wanting things to be as safely within their grasp as possible, and for entirely understandable reasons, they are unwilling to license others from outside the industry to come and play in the industry space. You have to have a certain amount of banking or insurance experience. They want to have it better, but they also don't want to let other people into well, the space. For so many reasons, the industry needs regular injections of new blood, new inspiration, new ways of thinking. And that's part of the process that has to go on continuously to culturally enrich financial institutions of all sizes. Otherwise, they will ultimately succumb to groupthink for example, the cause of many failures. The idea that a group of people who've been in a particular business for a long time develop certain assumptions about what the risks and rewards in that business are with potentially disastrous consequences, or frankly, just mediocre consequences over the long term and not enough innovation. 
Okay, and you've both touched on this to a degree, but what common mistakes do you see financial services bosses and boards and indeed regulators supervising these firms making when it comes to understanding or trying to measure the culture of their organisations and what should they be doing to address those? A lot of the indicators you need are right there within your grasp. You don't need to spend money on fancy software or consulting solutions to this. Actually, a great deal of the cultural raw material you need to observe is right there within your field of view. So let's just pick out some of those observations that you can make right now with material that already falls to hand. And yet, the tendency of people in financial services to want to go with what I think of as shiny boxes or branded things. Let me just pick out a couple which I particularly dislike. The training attendance metric. Now, let's just reduce that to what it is actually telling us. The training attendance metric simply says how many bums were on seats at a certain point in time or how many eyeballs were on screens at a certain point in time. It tells us nothing about knowledge absorption or what we really want to know, which is how that absorbed knowledge was then put into practice back at the desk. Now, there are tools, actually really quite simple ones, which will measure how the acquired knowledge was then put into practice. But it's so much easier just to collect a name on the attendance register to say training done. Let me pick out another one just to annoy part of your audience, because I'm sure plenty of people are using it. Net promoter score. So asking somebody at point of sale how happy they are with the product they've just invested in or acquired is psychologically untruthful. Because if you've ever spent a little bit too much money on a nice piece of clothing or a shiny car or a holiday or something like that, which you know you're going to have to pay off later, but let's not think about that right now. The person who's just sold it to you says, are you happy with the purchase decision you've made? Of course you say yes, even though in the back of your brain you're thinking you're not, uh, because the last person you want to admit a <laughs> purchase regret to is yourself or indeed the person you've just bought the product from. So the industry's use of net promoter scores is fundamentally misleading, and not actually on the regulatory or consumer side, but actually to the industry itself, because it distorts the psychological truth of what's happening. The reason people use NPS is it's a vanity metric. It tends to uplift confidence levels. And the other reason, of course, is that lots of big brands, particularly big American multinational brands, tend to subscribe to it. Mm -hmm. And a thing to add there, Jan, because I know that you've been working for a number of years on the connections between cultural characteristics and legal risk in financial institutions. I'm just wondering whether you've seen any common mistakes come up as part of that research. Very many. A negative lawyer's way of thinking about this does tend to be looking at it from the perspective of the mistakes people have made. But actually, it's only by looking at what's wrong and trying to avoid that, you can avoid failures in the future. And the kind of characteristics that we look at, we look at cultural or try to help our clients understand what regulators mean by culture when the institution's been accused of some failure. It is a relatively short list, actually. You don't have to write a book about this to come up with a list of the negative cultural characteristics that you want to avoid. So the key ones that we've seen really over the last 10 to 15 years going back to and including the financial crisis are things like excessive secrecy in an organisation. So very basic stuff like that, where not enough people know the things they need to know to get on with their job effectively or to manage the risks effectively that they're taking. The overuse of work silos, little empires being developed within institutions, which can exacerbate problems around information sharing, or it can put people in competition with each other within an organisation in ways that are detrimental. We've talked about the blame culture, a very common cultural failing where getting to find out who's responsible for a problem seems to be a more important objective 
objective than finding out why it happened or what the lessons are that can be learned. In more extreme cases, cultures of confrontation where aggression and over-assertiveness become part of the culture and lead to the propagation of various quite negative risks. I also talked about groupthink earlier as well, which is one of the most common and pervasive types of negative cultural characteristic, just because it doesn't obviously look negative to people. If you're trapped in groupthink, it may even appear to you that you're having a good and successful time, whereas in fact you're part of a group where the views and conclusions reached that determine how you operate your business are not really based on any strong analysis or validation. And no one can in fact remember why you're doing what you're doing in the way you're doing it. And before you know it, it all unravels and you find that the assumptions on which you're basing, for example, your risk-weighting framework for a loan book turn out to be based on incorrect assumptions. On the groupthink point, there is actually a specific definition of it, which is it's really all about social grooming. and It's very much a status thing. So groupthink tends to arise or the risk of it tends to arise when you've got groups of high status people who are busy reassuring each other about how important they are. And as part of that reassurance, they neglect to ask challenge questions. So absolutely, groupthink is a problem, but it's not as simple as just a bunch of people all agreeing with each other. It's very often a status game of reassuring people that their seniority is valid even though they're not asking the right questions. We also see some other, perhaps more obvious, negative cultural things that still happen in indecision. There are institutions out there, believe it or not, where it's still difficult to take strategic decisions and allow things to drift. And ultimately, that can materialise in various nasty legal and regulatory risks. And last but not least, I can't help mention this one, it is excessive complexity. Now, we've all seen institutions where if you come up with an idea that's more complex than it needs to be, you're actually praised for being very clever and coming up with something that's intricate and solves a problem in what some people might call an elegant and beautiful way, when in fact something much simpler might have got you there. This tendency to assume that an arrangement that is complex is somehow more sophisticated and interesting than one that's simple. There's much less of that now than there was in the large financial institutions before the financial crisis, but it's still one to be guarded against. And there's a particular personality type, both at the creation end of the spectrum in terms of coming up with ideas and in management that can, if you're not careful, propagate that problem when sometimes people should just stand back and say, is this really as simple as we can make it? Okay, interesting. Well, plenty for listeners to take away there and think through as to whether or not those aspects are at play within their institutions. Your comment about excessive complexity made me think of the compliance to-do list that firms have to work through at the moment. You could argue that's excessively complex currently. Whatever you think of Griffith's comments in regards to the consumer duty, it's undeniable the timing of the consumer duties introduction is proving challenging for city firms, many of which are currently still grappling to comply with various and sometimes wholesale changes to the UK finance rulebook off the back of the UK's departure from the European Union. What advice would you both have for boards and bosses in terms of what they should be prioritising now in the cultural context? Rather than getting terribly concerned about getting down into the weeds and do the line by line, what the regulator is really looking for is the quality of conversation and also the firm-wide engagement. There's some really interesting stuff going on in places like Australia and Singapore at the moment, where regulators are going around just randomly quizzing people on the shop floor, as it were, about, so tell me a bit about your values and how you're putting that into practice day-to-day for the best possible customer outcomes. And this is a really good way to visualise the task here. It is every person within every firm needs to have invested a bit of time in thinking, what am I doing here when I come to work? What's the point of this organisation? Other than obviously rewarding itself and paying my salary 
gallery and paying its shareholders. What do we do? What do we leave behind that is of greater value simply than a bunch of people shoving money around the market? And this is a very fruitful discussion to start because the next generation of employees coming through want to have open discussions about this. So we don't wake up to this. We're not going to get the quality of staff that we need to give a decent quality of service going forward. So it's even more fundamental than just obeying the rules. But just leaving that aside and specifically looking at the rules for a second, it's not as difficult as all of those line details perhaps we've had general managers believe. It really is about what is the value of what you do? We don't mean to the balance sheet to the investors. We mean what is the value to society as a whole, to the economy of what you do? If you can't answer that question, then maybe you want to go away and think about that a little bit harder. And by the way, allow all of your staff to reflect on that for themselves rather than simply teaching them a rote learned. And then it should be relatively natural to align day-to-day behavior in terms of product sales, customer service, working together with those values. If you combine that with the current uncertainty, both macroeconomic and geopolitical, people really need to know why they're doing what they're doing, that they can ask questions about what they're doing. So a good working environment, I think, from a cultural perspective in financial services is one where you can and, in fact, are expected to ask questions about what you're doing, not just working to a work plan, but being curious. And if you're an organisation that recruits lots of graduates, you want to make sure they're curious people and not people fit into a particular rut. Okay. There has been a lot of focus on the cultural dynamics at play within financial services companies, in large part due to all these regulatory pressures that we've been discussing, but less so on the culture at play within the UK's regulators. To get a better sense of that, I recently FOI the FCA to ask it to disclose the numbers of allegations of discrimination, bullying, harassment and racism that have been made by FCA employees against other employees across all seniority levels at the FCA in 2020, 2021 and 2022. The FCA responded to let me know that it had received 38 such allegations and 30 of those were against its senior employees. And there are roughly 4,000 employees at the FCA just to get a sense of the ratios there. For comparison's sake, I sent the same FOI request to the Prudential Regulation Authority. The PRA disclosed that in the time period requested, there were a total of three formal grievances relating to allegations of discrimination, bullying, harassment or racism made by PRA employees against other employees at the PRA and it added that there are approximately 1,440 individuals working for the Bank of England's PRA function. And if you'd like to hear more in-depth discussion on those data points and the views of former regulator Christian Hunt and regulatory lawyer Penny Miller as to what the regulatory reaction to those should be, then do listen in to a podcast that I published on March 7th, which is available wherever you normally listen to this podcast. But a question for you, Jan and Roger, what lessons do you think regulators need to learn with regards to culture? Well, there's nothing that we've said about culture on this podcast that isn't in some way translatable into the organisation and the people who work in the regulatory institutions. The FCA in particular, I have to say, because it's so much larger than the other regulators that we deal with in the UK. And one has to look at least as much about the culture of the regulators and what's going on there as one has to about the industry itself when you're looking at what needs to be done to make our regulatory system a bit more effective. So let's talk about the regulator's own culture beyond perhaps just that political game that we know regulators have to play. The most obvious challenge the regulator faces is that most regulators understand at a political level that they are required to produce a certain hit rate and a universal truth of regulators that no regulator ever actually has the resources they need to do the job that they're commissioned to do. And that therefore every regulator has to adopt a number of strategies to legitimise their role and to strengthen public and industry support. 
for what they're doing. And one might look at the FCA in relation to the senior managers regime, and perhaps because they are, on one level, political animals, they look for stories they can tell that persuade the public and their political sponsors that they're doing a decent job. Now, we then get into the slightly awkward area of what an American analyst calls expressive enforcement. What I'm saying is every regulator appreciates that getting a few wins, particularly into the public space, is good for business. And the temptation is always to go for a few wins from the low-hanging fruit. The FCA is, I would judge, no better or worse than many other regulators in looking for opportunities to market its successes. But the tendency, of course, is for it to lean towards easy wins over people who have behaved egregiously badly, who they can then make a big fuss about. It is a political game, at least in terms of lots of effort being put into making an example of certain individuals that may have a very narrow impact in the short term, but doesn't necessarily change behaviour at all, particularly if the cases chosen are egregious, so that most of the industry can look at those and say, well, I'm not like that, so it's not going to happen to me, even though the person saying that may be existing in an institution with significant cultural failings, for example, poor customer treatment. And it would be a big shame in the context of the SMCR if somehow the lack of enforcement of the rules relating to SMCR were used as some sort of proxy for its successful failure. Because certainly what I've seen since it's brought in is a really significant change in the attitude of senior management to what their role is. A really quite forceful realignment of the thought process that goes into becoming a director, particularly of a large institution like a system bank or insurance company Neds have all said, you've really noticed over the last sort of four or five years in particular, that they feel much more empowered now to challenge over mighty executives who are making careless decisions or trying to bulldoze things through. And I think that's improved the governance health of the sector generally. So we have mentioned the SMCR multiple times during this conversation. And Roger, you mentioned the Edinburgh reforms as well, which are a package of post-Brexit reforms for the city that the Chancellor announced late last year. One of the proposals that was put forward as part of those was to review the SMCR. It's not clear exactly what that review will entail at this stage. But what would you both like to see within that review? I would like to see, frankly, no fundamental change to what the SMCR is trying to achieve. I think the question is whether it is currently optimally structured to achieve what it set out to achieve, which is adequate senior management responsibility and accountability. And frankly, there's been some bewilderment about the announcement there would be this review from some of the institutions that you would most expect to be hardest hit by the regime. And that's not just because they've invested millions of time with this. It's because a lot of them think that it's fundamentally worked quite well in changing behaviour since the financial crisis. So I do wonder who it was that persuaded the government it would be a good idea to do a wholesale review, if indeed that's what we're looking at, of that regime. Having said that, as a lawyer, I can say there are some areas of friction and difficulty in the regime, many of them procedural. The amount of grievance and upset that's caused by the regulatory reference process uh, in particular is something that has ruined a lot of careers, which perhaps didn't need to be ruined because of the way in which the rules work on regulatory references. The problem is not that regulatory references are required. They're a fundamental part of appraising anyone's suitability for a job. It's the prescriptiveness of the rules and the fact that the way that the market has developed is that any qualification on those references can be career death, at least in large parts of the financial sector. And that is not how it was intended to be when the regime was first written. It's unfortunate it's developed in that way. But I think fundamentally it would be a mistake to change the core principles underlying the regime. 
So I'd like to see maybe the Edinburgh reforms reinforcing this conversation that's already partway started, not just in the UK, but among other conduct regulators globally, of how can we support good, engaged risk-taking. Risk-taking is good, provided that people have the right checks and balances around it. So I think modelling through our indicators, things like leadership character, cognitive reach, psychological safety, these are all things where if the industry is taking on this learning mentality, there's lots of progress that is visibly going on, and we should be happy to talk about that. So the more we can get away from, let's say, input indicators, an input indicator is how hard are we trying to solve the problem? The output indicator is what are we succeeding in transforming and doing well and doing better? Classically, of course, politicians are great ones for using input indicators. And I think actually as a financial industry, we need to get more into the habit of talking about outputs. And I think the consumer duty package and potentially the Edinburgh reform package actually help us to move in that direction. So I'm quite optimistic of that. Okay, I think we're not alone, us three on this podcast, in wanting more clarity as to what the intentions behind that review are. Last question to both of you. We've covered a lot of ground during this podcast. What action points or key takeaways would you like listeners to remember from this episode? It's very important that culture is assessed and that people don't think it's too nebulous a concept to be assessed within financial institutions and, as we've said, within regulators. And that by breaking it down into its constituent parts, recognising what it is you're looking for in terms of things to avoid or things to encourage in an institution, it can be done. But if done at too superficial a level, nothing will be achieved. And my concern that I've been mentioning throughout is that the way that the regulators often talk about culture is too superficial and not granular enough to be helpful to the industry, which is why I think the industry itself needs to look at cultural issues and to find ways of assessing how to improve its culture where that's necessary. Start simple is the message, and you should be able to have a conversation around what good behaviour is. It's not just a top-down beaming signals down from senior people. It's not just about senior people making positive noises. It's about all staff engagement and actually tapping into the fact that all staff want to do the right thing. People generally want to do a good day's work and the satisfaction of delivering a good product. So I would say start the simple conversation. As part of that, be willing and actually keen to triangulate. So listen to the signals that come in from the outside. Look at Glassdoor, look at Violation Tracker, look at Culture Scope, look at all of these tools that are now available in the public domain that will give you a much better reading on what your staff, also your customers, the general public and the politicians, think of you. Get your senior managers into that conversation routinely. One problem we have at industry level is we tend to promote people on technical merits. How skilled are you as a risk analyst or whatever? And not then invest enough effort into senior people having better people skills. So get those senior people regularly walking the floor or dropping in on the team Zoom meetings and just being accessible to very straightforward conversations where people can put a hand up and say, uh, can we talk about such and such a thing which maybe doesn't work as well as it could we make it work better? Generally, we have a big opportunity here to build on this idea of exemplary conduct. We're 10 years past the original idea of quote-unquote conduct risk of these long-tail misconduct events. Yeah, the bad stuff keeps happening as it would in any industry employing hundreds of thousands of people. That does happen and we need to be good at identifying it and driving it out. But the great majority of the industry, let's call it the middle of the curve, is doing good work. And we need to, in our reporting of conduct, celebrate that what's good is normal and what's normal is good. And the regulatory package, whether it's consumer duty, whether it's potentially the Edinburgh reforms and competitiveness, they give us so much opportunity to represent that in the reporting space. A lot of firms haven't even realised benefits to the industry of that positive reporting and getting away, as Jan said at the beginning of the session, of this sort of fixation on calling out the negative stuff and getting down into the fine detail of feeling threatened about all the bad that could happen rather than talking about all the good that does happen. 
Okay, you've both provided plenty of food for thought for individuals within the financial services sector to mull over as they seek to promote good cultural outcomes within their organisations. So thank you both very much for your time and insight today. Thanks, Lucy. Thank you, Lucy. A pleasure. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.